Michael, it's Saturday morning. Do you know what comes next? Well, Saturday night. Exactly. More precisely, Saturday night cocktail hour. And more often than not, on that blessed occasion, I am enjoying a few sips of tequila Comos. I've heard about this. It comes in a handcrafted, beautiful blue bottle, right? Exactly. Tequila Comos is a new brand of tequila that combines both artistry and innovation. To make their Añejo Cristalino, in addition to using traditional production methods, Tequila Comos ages its product in the best white wine barrels from California versus the whiskey barrels that are normally used. They also drip their tequila through charcoal to remove impurities and ensure that in your glass, it's crystal clear. In addition to the classic Cristalino, there are several other varieties. The Reposado Rosa is the first to market ultra-luxury rosé tequila, which is naturally pink like a great rosé as it is aged in red wine barrels and comes in a beautiful light pink bottle. I like that one too. Their most opulent expression is an extra Añejo, aged for three years in both French oak white wine barrels and American oak whiskey barrels, earning it a perfect 100-point rating from the Tasting Panel magazine, the first and only tequila to do so. Take it neat, over ice, or in a cocktail. Better yet, bring a bottle to the host of the next dinner party you attend. A future invitation is guaranteed. Happy Saturday. It is June 25th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Ashley, welcome to Saturday. Welcome to Saturday, Michael. We've arrived at that point in summer where despite all the insanity happening in the news every day, I am still in a good mood. Explain it. Probably because the long holiday is coming up here, getting ready for the 4th of July, you can sort of let go a little bit. And we're going to be on vacation for two weeks, right? We are. It's an annual tradition here at Airmail. Our entire staff goes on holiday for two weeks. So I am currently in London by the time you're listening to this. Michael, what are your plans for the big break? I am going to be hiking in the Dolomites in Italy. (laughs) Okay, excuse me. Yeah. What's taking you to the Dolomites? Family hasn't organized something there. So yeah, look, I've never been. So it'll be Ricola for me. Maybe a little dressing in some lederhosen and just seeing how it all goes. I'm really excited. It's supposed to be beautiful. Okay, I know you pretty well. You would not wear lederhosen. I know Tom Brown has done some sort of custom hiking ensemble for you. Tom, I see you. Well, regardless, you know what I'm not going to be doing? Tell me. I'm sure if you've seen all the travel chaos here in the U.S. with flights canceled and everything, one thing I'm not going to be doing, thanks to a tip in this week's issue filed under the problems of the 0.01%, is I am not going to be flying in a G6. Okay, Michael, I have bad news for all of you Gulfstream owners out there. It turns out that your latest acquisition may not have been exactly what you thought it was going to be. We have a serious case of flyer's remorse happening in the friendly skies right now, and Tar Tarpley Hit is here to tell us all about what is eating up the uber rich. Tarpley is a writer for Gawker and also an editor at The Drift. And I believe that this is her morning meeting debut, everyone. So let's give her a round of applause and welcome Tarpley Hit. Hello, thanks for having me. So Tarpley, what on earth is going on in the world of Gulfstream? So basically there's two models of private jet that Gulfstream put out a couple years ago, the G500 and the G600. And they're both enormously expensive. Let's give some numbers to that. So the G500, the discount model, basically, it's a cool 44-ish million dollars. And the G600 is sort of, it goes 
bigger, it goes farther. It's around 57.9 million, if I'm remembering correctly. Let's say an even 58, once you play tax on it. Exactly. But the problem with these planes is that maybe they fly great. Maybe they take off lovely. You're cruising at top speeds. They don't land that well, it seems. It seems that, that there's a software issue in both planes that makes it difficult for the pilots to land in winds that exceed 15 knots. That's about like 17 miles per hour. Wait, okay, so Tarpley, 17 miles an hour, that seems like, I wouldn't even classify that as a wind. That seems to me more like a breeze. Can you give us some comparisons here? That wouldn't even help me get down the street. Yeah, it doesn't seem like that much. I can leave it to the pilots to say sort of how consistent that may be, but it seems like very little wind resistance amounts to bad news for these jets. So basically there were two incidents with the planes. There was an incident in February of 2020 where one of the planes was flying at night. There were strong gusts, but not maybe that strong even. And and when they tried to land, there was an error with the computer software that determines the angle of the plane. So the plane and the pilot were sort of one aviation expert I spoke to characterized it as battling for control. And basically the end result was that the plane nose first entered a very fast descent. So it was going like 900 feet per minute down. And the plane didn't crash per se, but it had what they call a hard landing, which is just a very abrupt downward landing that comes short of a crash, but can still damage the plane. So in this case, the plane was damaged. It's kind of unclear to what extent, but so Gulfstream reported that to the FAA. And some context there is the Boeing 737 MAX Maxes obviously had this software issue a couple of years ago where they would nosedive and crash. And that led to two fatal accidents, which took place not too long before this Gulfstream incident. So that sort of just gives you some context for how people reacted to this hard landing, even though it wasn't a total crash. So the FAA puts out what's called an airworthiness directive, which is basically like a the FAA's version of a, of a regulation that applies to an air transit product that has an unsafe condition. So it's basically like a rule that they put down. And this one said among other things, that Gulfstream would have to update its user manual to make clear that pilots couldn't land in anything over 22 knots. And that was supposed to be temporary because Gulfstream was like, we're going to fix this. We're going to hop right on this, develop a software, solve solution. And then two years later, that still hadn't come out. So in April, there was another hard landing, this one on a G600. And it was basically the exact same situation as far as we know. No one died, but the plane was damaged. And so then the FAA put out a second airworthiness directive saying, actually, you should not fly these planes if there's going to be wind over 15 knots at the landing destination. Let's cut to the chase here. You've got, as you report in your story, that directive basically impacts 75% of clients' trips. The FAA estimates you encounter winds over 17 miles an hour if you're trying to land, right? So and you also report that some of the people who own these planes are among America's most voracious wealth hoarders. Robert Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots, movie director Michael Bay, one of the Pritzkers. you got some pretty pissed off people who feel like they may have bought something that wasn't worth, say, $58 million, right? Yep. 
You have some pretty angry billionaires. So there's about 180 planes registered in the U.S. and elsewhere, and they're all registered to some of the richest people on the planet and some of the richest corporations on the planet where they'll have an executive jet for their top C-suite people to flip between continents. One thing I would add is just that they cost between 45 and $58 million, right, as we discussed. But as one very angry person pointed out, that's only the ticket, the sticker price. So the recurring cost for maintaining one of these unusable planes is this person estimated around $300,000 a month because they've got to employ the pilot. They've got to rent the hangar space. All these ancillary costs that adds up to them just like shoveling out three times the amount of family makes in a year per month. Well, Tarpley, thanks so much for making time. I know you're busy. And where will your summer summer travels be taking you this this summer? So far, I'm grounded as well (laughs) for totally different reasons. I don't have a private jet at my disposal. (laughs) So weird. I don't either. Well... We'll start a GoFundMe page. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here and encourage everyone to read the story. And we'll see you again in the pages or on the airwaves of Airmail. Thanks for having me. Nice speaking with you. Yep. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. It's horrible for people who have spent $60 million just to avoid the TSA line. But I have to say there's an element of just desserts to this whole story for me. I mean, I've been waiting for this moment when... It hasn't quite happened yet, but I think we're headed for the moment when flying private is going to be a shameful behavior. I mean, the environmental impact is such that there's really no way to justify it. My guess is within the next three years, even the Kardashians are closeting that behavior. And as we learned in the documentary Fake Famous, it's pretty easy to fake that you are on a private jet by just holding a white toilet seat in front of a projected view of the sky and taking a picture, right? Who knew? Who knew? Yeah. Who knew? I don't know. Influencers, do you really want to be glamorizing this behavior? Michael, get me some statistics. Let's talk about the amount of carbon that's emitted into the atmosphere as a result of one private jet flight from Teterboro to Miami. Or one private jet flight to Ibiza. Oh, file that one under someplace I went in college that I'd never want to go again. And yet we have a story in the issue about it this week. Ibiza, apparently it's not as bad as it seems. It's not all phone parties and Paris Hilton DJs. I can, I think, proudly say I've never been, but it doesn't appeal to me. But as Elena Claverino reports this week, following years of hard partying, the Spanish island is not only going back to its bohemian roots, it seems, but taking it in a weirder depth. That's going a little bit further, right? Yeah, it's like the goop set has descended on Ibiza. There's this new quote-unquote energy-positive hotel chain called Six Senses that opened a location there. And I've heard good things about that, actually. There's also some housing developments that are centered around wellness that have opened there. Ibiza knows it has an image problem. So they're trying to, if you just injected things with enough green juice, perhaps it can rehabilitate itself. Yeah, it's, the island is now split into two camps. There's as one expat who from there says, in the south, there's still the cocaine and MDMA flow. In the north now, it's all about ayahuasca ceremonies, peyote ceremonies, and cacao ceremonies. Which leads me to this crazy detail in it, is that... There is uh, the wildest affairs happen at a place called Fincandelica, a 300-year-old, 21-acre, quote, magical free-flowing concept estate inspired by nature and tranquility that costs you $68,000 a week and where apparently they serve you chocolate mousse on platters that's mixed with peyote. As I was reading this, I just thought, it sounds like Los Angeles. On one hand, you've got the ranch in Malibu where you get six almonds for breakfast. And on the other hand, you've got the Playboy Mansion and everything that entails in the grotto. Like, it's two different sides of the coin, Michael. Two different sides of the coin. And frankly, neither one of those sides is for me. But hey, 
To each his own. To each his own leads to a good point, which is it's conflict about how people are going to spend their time and what they're going to do with it. And you brought in a great piece of reporting this week by Jay Cheshire's. We can't get enough of the saga of 11 Madison Park. First of all, essentially anyone who knows and follows the universe of food knows that 11 Madison Park was for a short time reputed to be the best restaurant anywhere. When that was going on, it was under the leadership of two gentlemen, Daniel Hume, who's now dating Demi Moore. That's a story for another day. And Will Guadara, who was the front of house man and really the operations director who aimed to bring a new type of hospitality experience to New York. And he was very successful at that. The partners had some sort of a falling out. They broke up and Guadara decided to come up with a completely new life for himself and reinvent himself as a hotelier with a fantastic restaurant at a property in the Hudson River Valley, which is just upstate from New York City. Jay is here to tell us all about where that project is and what's been going wrong. Jay is a marvelous writer for not only Airmail, but also for the Wall Street Journal and WSJ Magazine. He was also once a food critic for Gourmet and Time Out New York, so he knows his stuff, he knows his sauce, and he knows his dish. Welcome, Jay. Thank you. Great. Okay, Jay, first of all, who is Will Guadara and why should we care? Will Guadara ran 11 Madison Park with Daniel Hum for, I guess, the last eight years. Helped it become sort of considered... The top restaurant in New York, one of the best restaurants in the world, well known for his sort of super high touch hospitality, kind of the guy who's responsible for if you go to a restaurant, they know your drink order before you arrive. They've done some research on you online. He's the guy who sort of kicked all that off. And he recently had a high profile breakup with his partner and they went their separate ways, was kind of a bombshell in the restaurant world. And everyone's been sort of waiting to see what he does next. Okay, Jay, tell us, what do you know about the breakup? The breakup is pretty much shrouded in secrecy. They Neither of them have disparaged each other in any way, but their sort of styles have, I guess, had diverged and has taken a much more kind of serious approach post Gadara, very kind of less playful, I guess you could say. So I think the direction that they wanted to go in had diverged and that's kind of what, what happened. You say less playful. Some people might say buzzkill if it's an all vegan menu, but I mean, when they're used to getting all the indulgences, but that, I diverge, right? Yes. Less playful also just sort of in the spirit of the restaurants used to have these pretty over the top parties, which that all has pretty much ended in the post Gadara era. Okay, so take us to upstate New York. What exactly is Millbrook like and how did Gadara end up there? Millbrook is a really tiny place that I knew nothing about in the Hudson Valley, but kind of under the radar unless you're of a certain very moneyed ilk. It's just across the river from Kingston, New York, where Gadara moved during the pandemic. And he sort of started looking around for a place to build a fancy Epicurean food-focused hotel and somehow wound up in Millbrook, not a place that takes well to outsiders. It's just a tiny little village with a lot of very wealthy, very private people. His idea was to do one of those kind of Blackberry Farm kind of places there. I mean, a, a relay and Chateau sort of five-star hotel where the food and you sort of settle in and on the grounds and eat for a few days, right? Yes, a super immersive, very high-end kind of the place that a place that grows all of its own food where you would go to all of your meals would be included. There'd be a lot of really great outdoor activities. Yeah, Blackberry Farm was the model that everybody knows and that he kind of wanted to emulate here on the East Coast. He found a very 
kind of luxurious estate for sale and decided that that was the place to, to make this dream become a reality. So tell us a little bit about this castle of sorts that he has enlisted, or I think he purchased it, right, in Millbrook? Well, he has an option to buy it. It's a pretty large property, and with all of the land, the sale price was $20 million, and it was originally built in 1927 for Carnegie's daughter, and it eventually wound up in the hands of the Wildenstein family, the dealing billionaire family. And so they spent a lot of money kind of fixing it up, 50 million apparently, as a movie theater and special barbecue hut and all kinds of amenities and plenty of room to add more buildings and spread out. I think it's 350 acres. So Kadara secured an option to buy it, but since it wasn't zoned commercial, he was waiting for that to be pushed through, which he thought would presumably be a walk in the park and, and he would be able to realize his dream. Well, so let's get this straight. He's Here comes a guy, former partner in Love and Madison, coming right into the heart of the landed gentry, basically going to make like a food Disneyland for them, like Blackberry Farm. Right in their backyard, they can just basically drive their golf carts over there probably. But what they've circled the wagons against them, right? I mean, why have they not approved this? And what's the conflict here? Uh, well, he was sort of taken off guard to discover that the initial reception from kind of the town council, maybe the, the people who were not necessarily the true aristocrats of Millbrook was pretty warm. So he was kind of later found out that his neighbors, who you know, his direct neighbors, you might think they would want to be happy to be able to drive their golf cart over and, and grab a meal at uh, Will's beautiful restaurant. But they presumably have their own private chefs and have no interest in having a bunch of hotel guests living right next door and peering over the fence into their yard, so so to speak. Those people and everyone else of that ilk kind of didn't like the idea of these sort of a bunch of New Yorkers coming up to spend the weekend and dating their little slice of paradise. I mean, I guess we can understand that on some level, but I mean, Jay, as you were reporting this out, where did you fall? Who do you think was getting the short end of the stick here? I know Will, and I've known him for a few years. I was initially pretty sympathetic. I mean, I think he would build something beautiful. There was a little wrinkle that sort of, I think, got under my skin a little bit and certainly got under the skin of the people in the town that he sort of he added a real estate component to his plan. So not only was it going to be a hotel, there were also going to be sort of these luxury homes built on the property. Apparently, Blackberry Farm also has luxury homes on their property. And that was sort of a model that Will wanted to follow. But I didn't know about Blackberry Farm as having homes. And that's a different project than just just a hotel. So in a way, I think he's shot himself in the foot with that part of the project. That certainly didn't help him. He's now removed that from the plan, but I think maybe the damage was done having that early on as part of his agenda. All right. Fascinating stuff. Jay, because you're always on the road, I know you're going somewhere extraordinary next. Tell us, what are your summer travel plans? Just let us go ahead and be envious. (laughs) Getting on a plane to Venice tonight. Can't really say what I'm going to do there, but then heading to the south of France, back to New York, and then back to the south of France for vacation in August. So a bit of Europe this summer. Oh, you got to go two trips to the south of France? (laughs) That's so annoying, Michael. That's two transatlantic flights. God, man. Combat pay for you. (laughs) Exactly. All right, Jay. Well, we wish you a lot of luck in your travels. We do hope you make it back safely. And we look forward to checking in with you on the next great story that you've got in the works for airmail. Bye, Jay. Work with Dara, Michael. I feel for the guy. I mean, frankly, this project sounds like something I could really get behind. I know, really. It freshens up the neighborhood. I'd like it. But it reminds me that there's another pretty 
great. I know you're in London right now. Here's another news story out of London regarding restaurants and food and hospitality. Now, have you ever been to Osteria San Lorenzo? I didn't, but it was a little bit before my time. San Lorenzo was the hottest restaurant in Kensington and Chelsea for quite some time. It was established in the 1960s, and it was really at its peak during the 80s and 90s. A big shoulder-padded Chanel looks were all the rage. And... Just a few weeks ago, the owners announced that its doors are closing. It is all over. Its doors are closing. And yet it was legendary. And I think it had its last big moment in the under Princess Diana, where she said you'd walk in there and they had this legendary proprietor named Mara Berni, who Princess Diana called Mother Confessor. But it became known as not only the place where Diana took the young princes, Harry and William, but she sort of lived out her post-Charles love life there quite where she had lunch often or dinner with her quite openly rumored boyfriends, James Hewitt and James Gilby. That was probably its last big moment in the gossip columns, right? Indeed. It was a place where people who wanted to see and be seen went and were photographed. And that's one of the many reasons that we love it. It was a chronicler of its time. Vassie Chamberlain, who's one of our writers at large, writes about her fondest memories there. I mean, she saw everyone from Rod Stewart to Michael Douglas to Joan Collins to Mick Jagger, Jerry Hall, Eric Clapton, Roger Moore, everyone who was everyone. My favorite fact in this story is as... Mara Bernie says she likes to always recount the story when the Rolling Stones rang her bell at three in the morning, a late night recording session they just come from, and they wanted her to cook them dinner. Intriguing. By the way, a lot of people read our Joan Collins perfect ending. I think she is the summer muse for all of us, not just you and I. Why wouldn't she be? Hashtag Igon. Disagree with her on the Ronald Reagan being the best president thing, but aside from that, like pretty aligned. Okay, it's time for tequila break. Our previous conversation about tequila comos made me a bit thirsty. It's still Saturday morning, but I understand. In addition to making delicious handcrafted tequila, Comos will be spearheading the largest sustainability initiative in Tequila Mexico. Comos and its distillery partner have created a new environmental stewardship project that will expand upon the best use of tequila byproducts to the benefit of the community at large. Part of that initiative is to use agave waste to create bricks for local infrastructure. Another thing I love about Comos is their bottles. Each is handmade of ceramic glazed porcelain. And after you've enjoyed all those margaritas, they make beautiful crafts or vases, a much better outcome than sending another bottle into a landfill. To find where Comos is sold, to order it online, and to learn more, visit komoscomos.com. Well, I bet Joan Collins knew the subject of our next segment, a man who once said power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. That's a man named former Secretary of State for Richard Nixon, Henry Kissinger, who has a new book out, and Jim Kelly is here to tell us about it. Right, Ashley? Jim is not only our book czar at Airmail, but he's a formidable interviewer. He's also a FOG, friend of Graydon, and also the LTEOTM, longtime editor of Time Magazine. We're very happy to have him here. Welcome, Jim. All right, Michael, we have the one, the only Jim Kelly here to talk about. What exactly are we talking about? Henry Kissinger? Could it be? Very hard to believe. Jim, he's just turned 99. Yes. And yet he still managed to, manages to be like at the forefront of our consciousness and breaking news left and right. So tell us exactly what he's been up to and why he made it into the View From Here column this week. Well, it's very interesting. Maybe because he's been writing this book or getting ready for his birthday, but he was relatively quiet about what was going on in Ukraine since it all began in February. But at the World Economic Forum held in Davos this year, 
in May. It's usually held in the winter, as you know, but was put off because of COVID. He appeared on screen and talked about Ukraine in the sense that he felt for peace to be restored and for the world to get back to its usual chaotic state, that there had to be some compromise, and that the territory that Russia had seized in 2014, Crimea, which was never recognized as being seized by Russia, which they now control, and the two easternmost provinces, which are the most Russian of the provinces in Ukraine, that he should be given de facto control of them. This is classic Kissinger. He is all about wanting to make sure this is a war that doesn't widen further. He feels also that Putin, if pushed into a corner, could do things that would be deeply unfortunate. So his strategy is very much Kissinger, but not at all in step with what the rest of the world or the rest of the Western world has been saying and doing in trying to help Zelensky and Ukraine fight off the Russians. So he understandably got a lot of blowback. I don't know who Zelensky's PR person is. For all I know, it's Pat Kingsley. But he has great PR and responds immediately to any suggestion that he has to compromise in any way, shape, or form. And he reminded Kissinger that Kissinger, who lost relatives during the Holocaust, was basically telling him, who's also Jewish and who also lost relatives in the Holocaust, to surrender part of the country's sovereignty, which again, he in effect said, your real politic, which is what he's most famous for, Kissinger, is really surreal politic in that you're asking me to give up sovereign lands. But Kissinger's always preferred the larger power and feels that the world is most stable when larger powers feel confident. And if that means they flex their muscle and trample some of the smaller powers, well, so be it. Jim, the book is titled Leadership, Six Studies in World Strategy. And one person that's, as you note in your review this week, he intersects with Kissinger 50 years ago this month was the Watergate break-in, which brought down his boss, Richard Nixon. And you've got some great observations about Nixon and Kissinger and diplomacy. I think he probably felt that he had to include Nixon. He certainly has written enough about Nixon as he points out. I mean, he did a two-volume White House years, which involved mostly Nixon, a little bit Gerald Ford. But it's always been a very complicated relationship. Initially, when Nixon picked Kissinger to be his national security advisor in 1969, Harvard quickly shunned Kissinger because it was not popular to join the Nixon administration. And for the first few press conferences, Kissinger was not allowed to speak, Nixon standing next to him, because Nixon's aides thought people would be put off by Kissinger's very heavy German accent. But they've always had a, a, had a complicated relationship. And if you believe Woodward, in the last days of the Nixon administration, Nixon asked Kissinger to kneel down next to him and to pray. A lot of what we know about Nixon's last days obviously come from Woodward, which means it obviously comes from Kissinger. Kissinger has always been very adept at playing the press. He was very good friends with all sorts of journalists who should have known better, whether it's the Cal brothers or David Brinkley or Barbara Walters. And he could play the diplomatic dinner table game better than anyone else. But in this case, I think he wanted to give Nixon a little more of his due. I mean, after all, as pointed out, he's 99 and Nixon has been dead for decades. And without Nixon, there is no Kissinger. I mean, Kissinger owes his fame entirely to Richard Nixon. So what I found interesting is that, I don't know, about 20 years ago, Time Magazine had a dinner honoring people of the year and Henry Kissinger showed up. By that time, Nixon was dead, but his daughter showed up. 
And I happened to sit next to Tricia Nixon-Cox at the dinner afterwards. And she took great pains to explain just how much she would sit in her dad's executive office building office on Sundays. And while she was reading, her father was on the phone giving Kissinger very explicit directions on how to conduct his foreign policy. And there, so how many years later, Tricia Nixon-Cox is still fighting the battle of basically who deserves the credit for opening China. And there are other things in the Nixon administration. I mean, they ended the war in Vietnam, messily, but still, and it left it Gerald Ford to really retreat. But it's always been a very, very complicated relationship. And Kissinger's a very smooth writer. It's, he would have been a terrific op-ed columnist if he had chosen to go a different way. Not an op-ed columnist we necessarily would agree on with, but he's quite a good writer. I mean, at 99, the guy is still making the rest of us look unproductive. He's as measured and deliberative and quick as he's always been. And I remember when Reagan was running for president, he was in his late 60s. Journalists were joking that, my God, this guy is in his late 60s running for president. My grandfather's in his late 60s, and we don't even let him use the remote control for the TV. And of course, Joe Biden, is interesting, is getting a lot of criticism now for showing his age. But Kissinger, it's quite remarkable that he has the mind he has still, and as sharp as ever. And you may disagree with him, but you certainly have to marvel at his ability to, to think cogently and persuasively and with, with great detail about these encounters he's had with these people, some of them many, many decades ago. Jim, we last had you on to talk about Zabar's. Now we're yes. talking about <laughs> Henry Kissinger. Where will your curious mind take you next? Well, so funny. I get a lot of books, obviously. Many of them I asked for, some of them unsolicited. But a couple of months ago, I got a book called 10 Tomatoes That Changed the World. And I thought, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. I mean, there's, as you probably know, the Braudel theory of history, which is reshaped by forces much larger than any person. And this is two-volume history of the Mediterranean is all about how the sea shaped countries around it, not vice versa. Then, of course, you have the great man theory of history, which Kissinger is a big believer in, in which it's really a person who can change history. But this guy seemed to come up with how a vegetable <laughs> can play a pivotal role. And I'll tell you, I read it absolutely both entranced and enchanted. I mean, I love tomatoes, and especially in the summer. And now I cannot look at a tomato without thinking about how it was discovered by Cortez in Mexico and came to Europe, and they didn't know what to do with it, and they used it as decorative plants, and they actually thought it was poisonous, and then goes back to America. And in America, they discover what to use the tomato, and then it goes back to Europe, and that's when the Italians discovered that it worked very well with pizza. And then tomato soup, tomato paste. Tom I mean, it's really quite remarkable how much the tomato has changed us. So there you go. Here's the third school of history, the vegetable. You've made us all properly hungry. I'm getting out my mozzarella right now, Jim, and a little basil. <laughs> I know I'm going to spend the 4th of July weekend now reading that book and eating that book. Excellent. Excellent. you like the part about Naples. <laughs> What's not to like about that part? Exactly. Jim, it's always a treat to have you on. And I have a feeling you're going to be like Henry Kissinger, full of insights and great conversation at 99. Well, not if I keep going to Zabar's. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be death by Rugula. <laughs> There are worse ways to go. That's way. That's definitely. Death by arugula would be the worst way to go. But <laughs> Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Jim. Happy summer. See you soon. Same to you. Bye. Bye. All right, Michael. It's a holiday weekend almost. I need a way to make the time pass since I'm not going to be seeing you for a while. Any ideas? Thoughts? Oh, I do. It's a timely 
documentary on HBO called Chernobyl, The Lost Tapes. If you were, as I was, a fan of the masterful Emmy Award-winning limited series Chernobyl, which dramatized the harrowing story of what happened when the nuclear reactor exploded in the Soviet Union in 1986, you will find this documentary riveting and chilling viewing. The Lost Tapes is constructed out of newly uncovered documentary footage that the Soviets shot during the days and months after the disaster, mainly because they were convinced they were going to pull off a, quote, heroic, unquote, triumph. So they wanted to record everything. Of course, they didn't. They buried all this footage. It's now come to light. And this film has a power that lives primarily in its details and the voices that are recorded uh, from survivors and people who have participated in those days. I think the most memorable moment for me in this film is a small one. And when the residents were evacuated, they were told by the authorities they could only bring cash and IDs. And then as these thousands of buses rolled out of town, the dogs, which were being abandoned, all began what one person described as a unbearable communal howling. It's an amazing documentary. It's on HBO, Chernobyl, The Lost Tapes. But you, Ashley, you're over there in the UK. You must have sort of wonderful things to tell me from there that you can recommend. What do you got for me? Well, sadly, it's not from the UK. It's straight from our hometown of New York City. There's a marvelous new book out by Ada Calhoun. She's an author of the new memoir, also a poet, Frank O'Hara, My Father and Me. I didn't know this. I should have, I guess. I have no literary chops, it turns out. But Ada Calhoun is the daughter of the longtime New Yorker art critic, Peter Sheldahl, who is quite a character in addition to being a beautiful writer. And Ada has written two previous books that I really enjoyed, especially her history of St. Mark's Place, a street in New York City called St. Mark's is Dead, The Many Lives of America's Hippest Street. That was a good one from 2017. I like that. It's good, right? That was great. I think this one even tops it. So this is a book about three characters, Ada Calhoun, her father, Peter Sheldahl, and Frank O'Hara, the famous poet who died at age 40 under completely bizarre circumstances. Run over by a dune buggy on the beach in the middle of the night. Horrible. Yes, indeed. It's a crazy story. And he did so much good work by age 40. It's just shocking to think that he died so soon. Anyway, so Peter Sheldahl had attempted to write a biography of Frank O'Hara many years ago. And for various reasons, it never came to fruition. He didn't have the support of some members of O'Hara's family. Anyway, Ada discovers some of his research materials and takes up the mantle and tries to write a book about the making of this biography that was never to be, but instead ends up writing some type of a memoir of her father and also an autobiography of herself. So I thought it was just a wonderful way of dealing with difficult subject matter and also a really fun romp through the literary history of this particular period of New York, let's say 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Sounds fantastic. Thank you. On that note, we would like to thank our sponsor, Tequila Comos. Cheers to you. And we wish you all a wonderful weekend. And we thank you, as always, for joining us. Michael, will you please read us out? Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitale. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thanks again for joining us. 